Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Composers through the ages have been captivated by the sea and seafaring stories. From Mozart's Idomeneo to Meyerbeer's L'Afrikan, from Bellini's Il Pirata to Wagner's The Flying Dutchman and Tristan und Isolde, composers seem to be continually inspired by the sea and tales about heroes and heroines whose lives are impacted by life aboard ship. But there's another composer who seems to have been drawn by the sea more than once in his powerful telling of stories through music. That composer, of course, is the incomparable Benjamin Britten. Which brings me to today's opera. In this work, Britain sought to reveal the prejudice and cold-heartedness that existed in small village life on the east coast of England. It's the story of a rough-hewn individual who's confronted by an unfeeling society that has neither the capacity to understand nor the tendency towards acceptance in the face of circumstantial evidence. The opera is Peter Grimes, arguably Benjamin Britten's greatest work. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Today we're at the Oceanside Municipal Harbor, which moors recreational as well as small commercial fishing vessels. The British composer Benjamin Britten was born in just such a place, Lowestoft, Suffolk, on the east coast of England. The town began life as a fishing village in the 14th century, and until recently, fishing and ocean culture have always been part of its identity. It even has a small harbor, much like this one. Britain's immediate family didn't have much to do with the fishing habits of this, England's most eastern town. His father was a dentist and his mother an amateur singer. From early on, he was devoted to music, even composing pieces at the tender age of five. And without any significant musical training, although he did study piano and viola with private teachers in the town. But at age 14, he met the composer Frank Bridge, showed him some of his compositions, and Bridge took him on as a private composition student for two years. In 1930, he was accepted into the Royal College of Music in London, where he studied under composer John Ireland, and during this time he won numerous prizes for his works. In 1933, he met a member of the BBC Singers when rehearsing with them for one of his compositions. The singer was the tenor Peter Piers, who eventually became Britain's longtime life partner and collaborator in the creation of some of his greatest works. At about the same time, Britain began to write scores for the GPO Film Unit, the BBC, and various small left-wing theaters in London. Here he met another great influence on his life, the poet W.H. Auden. Along with Auden and Piers, just prior to the beginning of World War II, Britain decided to come to America. They were conscientious objectors to war and felt that they had no real place in the British war effort. And so in 1939 they left, with Piers and Britain settling first in Amityville, Long Island, Auden providing Britain with the libretto for his first opera, Paul Bunyan, which had its initial performance at Columbia University in 1941. 
Now, here's something really interesting. In the summer of 1941, Britain and Piers were invited to come west to stay with the British duo piano team, Ethel Bartlett and her husband Ray Robertson, who were summering here about 20 miles east of this harbor in Escondido. Now, can you imagine summering in Escondido in 1941? The North San Diego County town had a population of about 4,000 people, and it was about as rural and agricultural as inland Southern California town could actually get. But while on an excursion from Escondido to L.A., Britain and Piers came across a British literary journal in a used bookshop containing an article by E.M. Forster about the 18th century poet George Crabbe's major work, The Borough. It was this article that first stirred the composer's desire to write an opera. In a letter dated July 29, 1941, he wrote, We've just rediscovered the poetry of George Crabbe, all about Suffolk, and are very excited. Maybe an opera one day. A few months after Britain's sojourn in Escondido, he and Piers went back to the East Coast and met Serge Kuzovitsky, the conductor of the Boston Symphony. A renowned patron of young and struggling composers, Kuzovitsky offered Britain a commission for the proposed opera, Peter Grimes, and promised to perform it at the 1944 Berkshire Music Festival. Buoyed by the $1,000 commission, Britain traveled by ship back to England with peers, and while aboard, they cobbled together a scenario for the opera to be based on George Crabbe's work. On their return to England, they presented it to the poet and playwright Montague Slater, whom they asked to put it into verse form. Slater filled out the scenario with other characters from the Crabbe original, giving Grimes' village an immediate sense of teeming life. Now, Britain didn't begin working on the score until the libretto had been completed, but during this time he was informed that the promised performance at the Berkshire Festival would not occur because of wartime cancellation of the summer season. He therefore approached the Sadler's Wells Company, of which Piers was a member, to see if they'd be interested in the premiere. Although they were somewhat nervous about the subject matter, they did agree to premiere Peter Grimes and chose it to be the work that would reopen their theater in Islington after the finish of the war in 1945. I say nervous because Grimes, the character, went through many revisions and it was not known to what extent he would be shown as a child abuser. But Britton and Piers, in co-creating this central character, eventually decided to make him far more ambiguous in order to allow the audience to decide for themselves whether he was culpable or innocent. Grimes is therefore made much more dangerous and the reaction of his village to his moral state far more provocative. After a grueling rehearsal process, many flare-ups of temper and nerves, the piece finally met its public on the 7th of June, 1945. When the curtain fell, there was silence for 30 seconds. The cast was in a complete state of nervous panic and feared for the worst, but a roaring chorus of applause finally greeted them, and there were 14 curtain calls. It was a tremendous success all around, pleasing both critics and public. The following summer, it finally received its Tanglewood premiere in the Berkshires with Kusevitsky's young protege, Leonard Bernstein, conducting.
The opera Peter Grimes opens at a coroner's inquest in the borough, a small fishing village on the east coast of England. The fisherman Grimes is testifying about the death at sea of his boy apprentice. The villagers in attendance have no sympathy for the man and suspect the worst. Only Balstrode, a retired merchant shipper, and Ellen Orford, the village schoolmistress, show him any sympathy. Balstrode pointing out to the crowd that Grimes saved the apprentice from drowning once before, and Ellen comforting Grimes after the inquest is dismissed, the fisherman exonerated, but warned never to use another apprentice. Dawn breaks on the village in the next scene, and we meet characters like Auntie, the town madam and innkeeper, the rector, a Methodist preacher who drinks, and Mrs. Sedley, a respectable woman who unsuccessfully hides a nasty drug habit. Grimes calls from offshore for help with his nets, but no one will come help him until it's absolutely necessary. Hobson, the local carriage driver, refuses to pick up and deliver Grimes's new apprentice until Ellen Orford offers to accompany him to keep the boy company and comfort him. Grimes confides in Captain Balstrode that he's both determined to win the admiration of the village through his success as a fisherman and to do things the way he sees fit, never to compromise or to give in to the social pressure of people. A coming storm sends everyone into the local pub, the board, to look for shelter. Each character has a solo moment as things become more lively at the bar, but suddenly at the height of the storm Grimes barges in looking for his new apprentice. Everything stops and he sings a brief aria that blends his mystical outlook and his violent core. This brings out an uneasy reaction from the gathered crowd and someone tries to break the spell with a sea chanty. Ellen and the new boy arrive and without allowing him time to rest from his journey, nor with a thank you to Ellen, Peter hustles the apprentice out of the inn. The next scene is Sunday morning. Ellen and the apprentice are out on a street by the ocean, and we hear the Sunday service emanating from the village church. She notices a tear in his sweater and a bruise on his neck and worries aloud whether the boy is being worked too hard or being physically abused. Peter enters and they quarrel, at the climax of which he strikes Ellen and rushes off with the boy in tow. A gathered crowd from the village condemns Grimes even as Ellen still tries to stick up for him. They all decide to go to Grimes's hut to rescue the boy. In the hut, Grimes reflects on his impossible situation and shows at times tenderness, at other times violence towards the boy. He knows now that he will never win the acceptance of the village, and when he hears them marching closer to his hut, he decides to leave quickly, rushing the boy out. In the confusion, the boy missteps and falls to his death on the cliffs below. The arriving villagers find no one in sight, and suppose that all is well, but Balstrode fears the worst, but keeps his suspicions to himself. Ellen and Balstrode have discovered that Grimes's boat is back in its mooring, although there's no sign of Peter. However, they've discovered the apprentice's jersey, and they know now what must happen. Mrs. Sedley has also discovered the boat and whips the village into a frenzy to find Grimes and destroy him. As the villagers wander off stage, we find Grimes alone, completely mad, accompanied only by the sound of a foghorn and the crowd's far-off cries of Grimes, Peter Grimes. He collapses in despair as Balstrode and Ellen find him and tell him to take his boat out into deep water and sink it. In a brief epilogue, the village awakens at dawn again, singing the same hymn to life by the sea which opened the first full scene of the opera. 
Grimes is gone and forgotten. The village moves on. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Benjamin Britten based his opera Peter Grimes on a poem by George Crabb called The Burrow, and I thought it would be fun to bring in my dear old friend Bart Thurber, who is the professor of English literature at the University of San Diego, to discuss George Crabb. So, Bart, welcome. Happy to be here, Nick. Good to have you here again. Uh, so tell me about George Crabb. Am I right in, in saying that he is a minor uh, early Romantic British poet? Yeah, I think that would be a fair thing to say now, although at the time, when he was alive, um, Wordsworth knew him and approved of him. Byron um, liked his poetry very much. He was apparently Jane Austen's favorite poet. Um, Tennyson later uh, liked him, but was a little concerned about the steady clop, clop, clop of his rhythm. It didn't, didn't vary very much. In his time, he was, um, he was very well regarded. Since then, uh, th- probably less so. Mm-hmm. Partly because of, the, of his, his take on poetry, I think. Why, why would Britain have known about George Crabbe? I mean, the story is that he and Piers were rummaging through an old bookshop and found a, an article by E.M. Forster, yeah. another great That's true. Uh, That's English right. writer, yeah. uh, about George Crabbe. And they immediately knew of this poet. I mean, yeah. was he better known 50, 60 years ago than he is today? Oh, I think there are a couple of things about that. One is that he might very well have known about him because Crabbe and Britain were both from the same part of England, Suffolk County in the far east. In fact, Crabbe was born in uh, Aldeburgh, um, and at some point later in his life, Britain also lived there. Well, and that's where they established the Britain Festival. It's exactly. still going every right. year in Aldeburgh. Uh, the other thing, though, is that apart from any familiarity he may have had with Crabbe's work, and apart from the geographical similarities they share, is the work itself. Peter Grimes is one of, part of a poem published in 1810 called The Burrow, as you said. It's in the form of 24 letters, so-called. And of those, the 22nd is Peter Grimes. And it's quite something. It's um, Shakespearean, even. And it's, I think, in its drama. Roughly, it's about a son who, enraged, kills his father, uh, becomes a fisherman, looks to London to get uh, apprentices who apparently are cheaply and shadily obtained, of whom he murders two of them. And then in the second half of the poem, suffers um, the pangs, uh, becomes kind of insane with grief, sees ghosts on the moors. And um, it's a hugely dramatic uh, story, and it would be a mistake to call it Shakespearean, but it's in that direction in terms of plot, things like that. So you think that it's, it's the inherent drama in the story uh, and the complexity of the character that draws Britain? I think that had to be part of it, sure. Um, but the fact that, um, well, when he, he sees this, the book in the bookstore, he is in the United States as a conscientious objector during World War II, uh, and he had been staying in, uh, in Escondido, California, um, which is about as unlike lush green England as you can get in the summertime. <laughs> Even today. Yeah. And so I think there was a sense of recognition that, this, that, that it's home. In fact, sometime after he, he saw the book, he applied to go back to England in 1942. So that 
familiarity had to be part of it. But I think it was it had to also have been the story itself. It was just a, like operatic to its core. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We were talking off camera uh, uh, not terribly long ago, and and you were you were guessing that Britain living in Escondido in 1941 and being far away, as far away as you could possibly get was, from Suffolk. I was guessing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that uh, looking at that dry environment uh, around him, he may very well have gotten very homesick uh, and, and wanted to return to England, certainly for that reason, but also to follow up on, on the opera. Yeah. Which we know now, uh, he and Piers began writing the scenario for the opera on the Swedish trawler that they finally that they finally boarded in order to get back to uh, to England, which is so interesting. Oh, you're right. I was guessing that he w- made some kind of connection with England through the uh, the George Crabbe poem, but I think we know now that that isn't. He was he yeah. did become homesick. It was absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Well, Bart, thank you very much for My enlightening pleasure, us a little bit on Crabbe, and uh, I guess we'll all do a little bit more research on him and yeah, find absolutely. a little bit more about him Thanks. and see the opera too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. It's incredible but true. People are still uncomfortable with 20th century music. And here we are almost a decade into the 21st. And we're faced now with one of the great masterpieces of English opera, a work of searing dramatic intensity that I know you'll love if you just give it a chance. Let's talk about the music and see if we can crack a few of its secrets for you. Let's take a look first of all at the characterization. This is something that I've talked about with so many other composers that we've dealt with, but we really haven't had the opportunity to see how Benjamin Britten does it. Well, here in the prologue of Peter Grimes, Britten works his magic within just the first few bars of the opera. The village is gathered in the moot hall at a coroner's inquest concerning the death at sea of Peter Grimes' apprentice, William Spode. The music introducing this scene is flip, a bit arrogant, businesslike. It characterizes the scene as well as the character of Hobson, the man who's chairing the inquest. Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes. Peter Grimes, we are here to investigate the cause of death of your apprentice, William Spode, whose body you brought to shore from your boat, the boy Billy, on the 26th Ultimo. Do you wish to give evidence? Will you step into the box? All you need to add here is the banging of the gavel to call the inquest to order. We get a clear picture of the events that are unfolding, as well as the character of Hobson, who is all business and perhaps a bit full of himself. What's interesting is what happens as soon as he tells Grimes to step into the box. The rhythmic value of the notes, both in the accompaniment and in Peter's vocal line, get longer and slower. Listen. Do you wish to give evidence? Will you step into the box?
Even more fascinating is the delivery of the oath which Hobson demands. His notes are short, curt, businesslike. Peter's repetition of the words of the oath is slower, more deliberate, overlapping Hobson's shorter and more determined pace. Now, I can't sing two parts at once, would that I could, but let me try to show you what I mean. Peter Grimes, take the oath after me. I swear by Almighty God, I swear by Almighty that the evidence I shall give, that the evidence I shall, shall be the truth, shall be the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Tell the court your story in your own words. So immediately at the beginning of the opera, we know who's who. We've captured the essence of two main characters, especially the protagonist. And we've been placed in a sonic environment that tells us where we are. At the end of the scene, the whole court has been cleared, and the only ones left in the room are Peter and Ellen, the schoolmistress, who has hoped one day for a union between the two of them. And this, of course, is something that Peter desires as well. Fascinatingly, Britain has the two of them sing texts that show how far apart they are. Peter is concerned with the gossip mongers of the town and how they'll do everything in their power to tear a man down. But Ellen speaks to him of restoring his name, that tomorrow will bring forgiveness, that there are new shoals to explore, new reasons for living. To support how really far away these two characters are from each other, Britain sets their lines in two different keys simultaneously. This is called bitonality. Their vocal lines struggle for dominance until the very end when they finally sing the same text and their melodies are finally in the same key. Peter begins the truth, the pity, and the truth. Ellen responds, Peter, Peter, come away. most remarkable moments comes just before the end of the opera when Peter, being hunted down by everyone in the village, finds himself alone on the beach. He's gone mad by this point, and Britain gives him an almost traditional mad scene that in spirit is very much like the mad scene from Lucia di Lammermoor by the 19th century's Donizetti, but whose content is most definitely the 20th century. It begins with the chorus singing the name Grimes from offstage, supported by muted horns in the orchestra with this unresolved chord. Underneath that, the tuba imitates the drone of a foghorn. Peter sings his scene essentially over this simple accompaniment. But what a vocal line. It's marked ad lib, 
and should be sung like a man completely destroyed, fragments of memory and recalled conversations returning to him in random fashion, with no tonal center and no boundaries. It's formless. It's a brilliant evocation of madness, but with the added knowledge of what madness truly is to our 20th century, 21st century modern minds. Not an excuse for pretty cadenzas and duets between flute and voice, but a depiction of the raw, frightful, disjunct fugue state that is marked by one who's lost complete touch with reality, who's experienced a complete mental breakdown. This mad scene is almost too close to reality, and perhaps that's why it makes many of us uncomfortable. There's no lack of recordings of Peter Grimes to get you started in your attempt to become more familiar with it before you come to the opera. So let's check out these three. First of all, we must turn to the composer's own recording of the work made in 1958. This is still available on London Decca Records, and the title role is portrayed by the great singer for whom the opera was written, Peter Piers. It's a lyric but searing portrait of the outsider, Grimes, and absolutely unforgettable. As the schoolmistress, Ellen, we have Claire Watson, and baritone James Pease as Balstrode. Britain's conducting of his own work really hasn't been surpassed. But we have two other recordings that in both cases have better contemporary sound and are equally well sung, but in quite different ways. In this recording from Phillips with John Vickers in the title role, we find a hard-edged, violent, and dangerous Grimes, a completely different take on the character than Piers, but nonetheless valid. Vickers' Ellen is the soprano Heather Harper, who is just fantastic, and baritone Jonathan Summers is Captain Balstrode. Sir Colin Davis conducts the Royal Opera House Chorus and Orchestra from Covent Garden. Finally, here's another excellent recording of this fantastic work from EMI in a production conducted by the eminent Bernard Heitink. Anthony Rolf Johnson stars in this recording, and he sings the role almost more lyrically than Piers does. It's really quite lovely. Felicity Lott is the Ellen, and Thomas Allen, in my estimation, is the ultimate balstrode. Again, we have the forces of Royal Opera House. Now, there are a couple of DVDs to choose from. The performance by John Vickers is on DVD, although I don't have it here. But I do have this DVD, which has just been released, from the Zurich Opera House, Christopher Ventris in the title role, Franz Welser Most Conducting. It's a wonderful production, a little starkly modern, but beautifully, beautifully sung. I'm sure out of all these resources, you'll find something to help you become more familiar with Peter Grimes. Peter Grimes began a renewed effort by British composers to write opera for the English language. It proved that opera didn't have to be in Italian, French, or German in order to capture the imagination of the public. It also proved that viable theatrical drama was still a necessary part of opera's essence, and that serious subjects of the human heart and mind can still be dealt with in musical terms. Don't miss a production of this great opera. It'll touch you and haunt you deeply. I'm Nick Ravellis. 
I'll see you at the opera. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.